0: Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Cause deep time will blow your mind. you doing it's good uh, it's good i'm doing all right i'm doing all right you know are you
1: are you disease free or covid free i am
0: covid free and we were thinking about traveling and uh we've decided we're not traveling we're not gonna do it we're not gonna do it gotta stay home hunker down
1: well, you know what? Even though the planes are safe, it's the people in the airports and its surfaces, and it just you don't want to be around a lot of people.
0: The flip side of all that is that I really am enjoying walking around Ketchikan, and the whale is continuing to kind of uh, hang out here. Uh, the, oh, uh, that's the humpback. Feed, yeah. The humpback that's bubble yes. feeding
1: right in front of your house, pretty much.
0: And, of course, they gave it a name now. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's called phoenix and phoenix oh. shall rise and bubble feed again so it's kind of cool because i mean it's all daily we can go down to the dock like where's phoenix so anyways phoenix is still around
1: and, and i'm gonna ask again so it's eating herring what is it eating
0: you know they are filter feeders so they go Shrimp? to the bottom they blow the bubbles and whatever they get and whatever they get okay, will be. okay can
1: you be a little bit more vague
0: well, you get everything in the water column, and uh, in that water column, this time of year, there's going to be juvenile salmon, there's going to be herring, there's going to be little baby sculpins, there's going to be this and that and the other thing. Any mid-water creature is fair game to the humpback whales. We always say krill, which are, you know, um, I mean, that's typically what you'll see in the Wikipedia pages and all that. And those are, micro, you know, small shrimp-like critters, but yeah. Anyways, Phoenix is uh, vacuuming up the Tongass Narrows.
1: So is there any fishing boats catching the same thing?
0: Well, there are fishermen that are, there are there's winter troll fishing going on. So there's fishermen out there and what fishing do they catch? for king salmon. They're looking for the winter kings. And there's also people with halibut quotas. So, they're so is it fishing. possible
1: that this bubble feeding humpback is catching winter kings or is that too big a fish?
0: That's too big a fish. The fish are too wily to, you know, the big, bigger fish are going to get out of that bubble.
1: I just thought so, that, you know, coming on to winter, there wouldn't be krill. There wouldn't be the huge, small fry blooms. There won't be baby herrings. I mean, it's
0: not as rich up here, plankton wise and food chain wise. And usually the humpbacks have gone to Hawaii. Yeah, this why, time wait, of wait, wait.
1: What is he still doing at Ketchikan?
0: Lazy, lazy. <laughs> Phoenix is lazy, laid back. He's chill. It's like, yeah, I just think you guys go away. Could
1: be a she. Do they know? They Could don't be a she.
0: Yeah, we don't know.
1: How do you Although tell the thinks, difference between a male and a female humpback whale?
0: Well, usually... From s well,
1: I mean, without a, a huge body glove.
0: <laughs> without a huge body glove. And, you know, their naughty bits are revealed, you know, when they get excited. But, uh... uh uh, but if you see a, uh, a, a female whale, it will have, you know, it's likely that you might see the baby with the mom. So
1: yeah, but just, that's
0: how you tell.
1: Okay. So the only way to know At a glance,
0: I don't think there's any right, way.
1: Right, right, right. Okay. So but here's is here's there a sexual dimorphism with, with whales?
0: I... I do not believe so with most cetaceans. They're pretty much the... I think you can ask a cetacean expert.
1: For once, you're wrong, Ray.
0: I woke up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night after recording this, realizing, of course, there are many sexually dimorphic cetaceans. Man, orcas for one. The males are a lot bigger than the females and have much larger and straighter dorsal fins. Sperm whale males can be three times larger than the females. And narwhal males are the only ones to have tusks, to name but a few. Jeez, Raymond. Drink more coffee. Pay attention. But here is a nerdy. You know, we we throw a lot of Latin around on this show. You do. I get it wrong. I do. The Latin name for a humpback whale, uh, the genus is Megaptera. Mega. You know what that means? I thought
1: it was catch a can and stay around us.
0: <laughs> no, Megaptera. Big, big. Mega big earth. meaning big, and Terra like as in pterosaur or tyrannodon. What? There's a hint. Wait, mega
1: wait, wait 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 mega pteranodon P-T-E-R. oh,
0: p t e r it's pter is with a silent p there the silent p um oh uh, uh,
1: giant you, you, giant on.
0: beak I don't know <laughs> no wing
1: right wing oh mega because, wing because their huge pectoral fins are massive
0: that's right man
1: almost half the size of their body.
0: So when I look at a humpback whale and think about the scientific name, I think about pterodactyls because there's the connection wing, big wing. So the Latin name is a beautiful thing, Megaptera.
1: What's the other whale that comes up There is uh, there? We get gray
0: whales occasionally.
1: And grays.
0: Grays, yeah. Grays not, not as often.
1: Oh, so you'd say like 90% are humpbacks.
0: Yeah. And every now and then we get orcas cruising through, and then we'll get dull porpoise as well. So
1: Yeah, yeah. I've seen uh, from my deck up at my property up there in Ketchikan uh, what looked to be hundreds of, of
0: porpoises. There have been times where we've had thousands of Pacific white-sided dolphins move through here. Wow. And that, that is something to see.
1: Maybe that's what they were. It's been,
0: it might have been. and Maybe if they these were jumping, leaping, and uh, you yeah. would have seen them from that uh, jumping, the property that lea- you own up yeah, north.
1: Jumping, leaping, yeah. and there was... There was, as far as the eye could see.
0: That was legendary, but those were Pacific white-sided dolphins. Oh. Hey, Dave, big news in the paleo world. Did you hear about the dueling dinos?
1: Yeah, I think it's awesome because uh, this giant T-Rex was just sold to some private collector. It's going to sit in some Stan. house.
0: We don't know who, they, who bought that. That was Stan, the T-Rex you're talking about. Right? Yeah.
1: And then the dueling dinosaurs, which is a baby or a young Tyrannosaurus, and a ceratopsian, a, a horned dinosaur. Triceratops. It is a triceratops.
0: Oh, yeah. It's the classic T-Rex.
1: Really? Three horned? Yep. Yep. And they died. They died together. But like, how do they know they're fighting? Is there like a claw in the back?
0: There, There is. I think there's some teeth that are actually in the uh, triceratops. Really? You know, so broken off from... Apparently, the T Rex uh, is a juvenile, but we can ask our guest coming up a today, little bit about juvenile T Rexes. Wait, That's our right.
1: guest today is like an expert on T Rexes, isn't she?
0: Our expert today is an expert. She's dedicated a lot of her life to understanding uh, the biology of T Rexes. You know how she does it, man?
1: Yes. I've heard her now. Yeah. She does it with histology.
0: What the heck is histology? We can ask her. Let's oh, ask you, her. Okay. Not, I don't want to. I'm not. Oh, you, you don't want to know. Me. All right. Well, do, let's see what the ventriloquist knows. What do you okay. know about?
1: Histology is the study of bone and bone structure. You can tell whether they died of starvation, whether they died of no water. It's, uh...
0: Really, from the bones?
1: Just from the bones. You can tell a lot about the organism's life.
0: Well, let's call up Holly Woodward. Let's talk to her about what you can learn from prehistoric bones. Oh, I'm up Should we call that? her up on the old, uh, phone <laughs> thing? <laughs> Hey, 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 Dave! Meet Holly Woodward, professor of anatomy and paleontology at Oklahoma State University, and and I am meeting you for the first time here in cyber world. So thank you, Holly, for joining us.
2: Yeah, no problem. Nice to meet you guys.
0: We usually start off with a question about paleo nerddom. Do you want to? Well, yeah.
1: So, Holly, are you a paleo nerd?
2: Oh yeah, I have been since I can remember. Um, I, I got bitten by the bug. A long time ago, my parents have pictures of me. I must have been like two years old, sitting out in the yard. Um, they, they put a little blanket down for me, apparently, and I had a little spoon and a pail and a little toy dinosaur next to me. I guess I was digging for fossils. Um, I don't remember wow. this at all. Wow! But yeah, so um, some of my earliest memories are of them taking me to a local museum to see the T Rex that was there, the model. And
0: um, where is this? Where 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 did you grow up?
2: Greensboro, North Carolina, so they have a oh, okay. natural sciences museum there and it was a lot smaller when I was a kid than it is now, but they they had this dinosaur hall. It had a stegosaurus and a triceratops skeleton. And a, a fleshed out scale model of a t-rex and um my dad would hold me up to it so i could you know touch its teeth and roar at
0: it <laughs> wow cool and were you kind of uh ecstatic when the jurassic park films came out and did oh, that yeah. seal the deal for you
2: by that point i i think i was either 11 or 12 and i was already sure that i was going to be a paleontologist so um when that movie came out i had already read the book several times and, oh wow <laughs> um yeah i was i was I was super uh, obsessed when I was a kid. Um, this and, is a
0: lifelong adventure for you. Yeah, wow. seeing,
2: seeing the Brachiosaurus. Um, I'm pretty sure that was the first time in a movie that I've ever cried. <laughs>
0: it was
1: really? Just, wow. It was so beautiful. Well, it had great music <laughs> behind it, and it was oh, an yeah. yep. amazing scene when, it, <laughs> mm-hmm. when you see these sauropods walking. Oh, my God. Yep.
0: So you, you were determined to be a paleontologist all along, and, and you ended up doing the whole university thing
2: yeah so um throughout you know my my schooling as a you know middle school and high school i i was really into science not just you know paleontology but i've always been curious about the world around me but i also like to draw the world around me so when i was a senior i was really torn it was like one of those forks in the road whether i wanted to go into art school or whether i wanted to what? go into science so what? yeah i applied to both um, got into art schools, got into science schools and <laughs> it was a tough decision, but i'm I don't regret going the science route
0: you know that's kind of weird because i have been a paleo nut all my life, but mm-hmm. I like to draw, so I assume you were drawing dinosaurs as a little girl then and oh yes. all your... so
2: <laughs> when when my parents um when I was little, my parents would take me to church with them and um you know, they would try to occupy me in the pews while they they were listening to the sermon. So they gave me little pads of, of paper to draw on. And at one point, I was you know cleaning up the house when I was growing um, a little bit older, growing up, and found that my dad had stuffed some of the drawings in his Bible, and they were all of dinosaurs, T Rex and Triceratops <laughs> fighting each other. Um, so we saved those drawings from oh, wow. Have really them? young. I, I think so. Um, they probably do because they save. You'll have
1: to grab some so we can take a photo of them and put them on your page at Paleo Nerds. That would be so awesome.
2: I'll ask them if they have
1: them. So it's
0: interesting. I I had the same dilemma, but I wanted to be a paleontologist, but I went down the art road, but Mm -hmm. I've kept my paleo chops all along. But actually, I'm just curious now that you say that you you were drawing and you almost were an art major. Are you doing some art in your these days at all? Do you do any art for your science papers or illustrations for...
2: I don't do as much as I'd like. Um, I used to try to do line drawings and illustrate some of the work for my, my master's thesis, actually. But since then, I've just, you know, I've had to sacrifice the time I'd like to spend in art to actually do the, the science. But when I have spare time, I do art for fun. Um, I, I enjoy it and I enjoy looking at other people's art. Um, Actually, my brother-in-law had um, a, a trout shirt, you illustrated, Ray.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if I was anywhere in anybody's wardrobe or anything. Oh, yeah, but...
2: yeah, yeah. So I visited Montana over the summer where my uh, brother-in-law lives, and he was wearing the shirt that had a trout on it. And I said, that's Ray Troll's artwork,
1: because, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you're I've very distinctive.
2: Um, yeah. And so he looks at the shirt, and he's like, how did you know how the you know this person and How'd you know that that was the art? And I'm like, well, he's pretty famous in paleo.
1: Oh, so yeah, he's wow. very impressed. Well, half my wardrobe <laughs> is Ray Troll art, like the thing wearing I'm wearing. One right now. <laughs> but it's not because I like his art. It's not because weird. every time I visit him, he gives me a free T-shirt, so.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I saw your exhibit, actually, in, um, at the Sternberg Museum. Uh, one of, oh,
1: really?
0: Yeah, so. Which one was that, Ray? It's the most recent one. It just closed mm-hmm. a oh, the, couple months oh, ago. Oh, the Oceans of Kansas? Prairie Ocean. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Long time no see. Oh. But. So, <laughs> Holly, you ended up, your academic career, you went to where the dinosaurs are. You went to mm-hmm. Montana. Yep. Was that your undergraduate degree? And, no. Or so was that?
2: My undergraduate degree was at North Carolina State University. Okay. And I studied under Reese Barrick and Dale Russell, a couple of oh. um, paleontologists that were at the university at the time. And I, I was really lucky to have found the program because... You know, I knew I wanted to do paleontology, but that was like when we were on the cusp of internet and world wide web being sort of prevalent. So I didn't know what I was looking for, I didn't have anyone in my hometown that could actually help me or guide me in the right direction. Um, And so I didn't even know what to search for on the internet to find paleontology programs. So I was really lucky that I went to one of those um, career fair things at NC State and uh, Dale Russell happened to be there standing next to this. skull of an Acrocanthosaurus, and
1: which is what um, What's i that? was
2: it's a meat-eating dinosaur actually from oklahoma uh, from oklahoma so it's you know, a theropod you yeah. mean yeah it was a theropod right. oh yeah and i was super excited uh and then i recognized this guy because i'd seen him on all the documentaries i would be watching and and uh super excited that i could actually study what i wanted right there in north carolina and didn't have to pay you know out of state fees or anything so that's where it started Um, And then I I went to Texas Tech for my master's degree and studied um, uh, sauropods in the Big Bend area of Texas.
0: Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Wow, cool.
2: And then ended up in Montana for my PhD.
0: Excellent. And you work with Jack Horner there.
2: Yes, yes. So I worked with Jack. um, And I wasn't familiar with the the field that I actually went into, uh, which is paleohistology, until I was... Uh, in my master's degree um, working with Tom Lehman there and um, we were trying to figure out a project for me to do for my master's degree because I I learned early on that I wasn't so interested in microfossil sites. They're really cool uh, because all kinds of little tiny fossils are preserved and can tell you a lot about the ecosystem. But um, they're
1: painstaking. I, they are. They're painstaking. So I, I you have to literally <laughs> sit there with a stereo yes. microscope and a tweezers mm-hmm. and separate the sand grains from the pollen.
2: Yep, yep. So I, I told, <laughs> I told Dr. Lehman that, um, you know, he wanted me to do this microfossil ecosystem analysis of Big Bend, <laughs> and about two months in. I just came to him and I said, I I can't, I can't do this. And he said, well, you know, that's okay. It's better, you know, now than waste two years, you know, hating your project. So I hear there's this cool thing you can do with bone histology, though I don't know much about it. And so I basically had to teach myself and him about bone histology. But I found really early on that it was super interesting for me. And then um, it just sort of spiraled from there and, and luck would have it that Jack Horner was... Really interested and knowledgeable and into bone histology, and one is one of the um, pioneers for for that work, so I was really lucky to go there for him.
1: <laughs> I tried to explain to Ray what histology is, and uh, I, <laughs> uh-huh. I did pretty good that was in our intro pretty good for a ventriloquist oh, okay. yeah, yeah for a ventriloquist, uh, but two questions: were mm-hmm. you part of Jack Horner's Hell Creek project when he got all this funding to find dinosaur DNA, which ended up turning out to be a dead end? Was that part of it?
2: So I was part of the Hell Creek Project sort of at the tail end. So I started my dissertation work there in 2005 and went out on summer excavations for several years as I was doing my dissertation there. And the Hell Creek Project portion that I participated with was basically we went out to the Hell Creek Formation in Montana and basically collected everything we found instead of you know having any kind of collection bias if we found something that was recognizable even microfossils um, all the way up to you know big triceratops frills we would collect the material to actually have a non-biased census of what was there in the Hell creek ecosystem that's
0: interesting Put it in the truck. Take it back. Yeah, yep. catalog it.
1: Now, uh, could you wow. just give us a real, real quick primer on the origin of histology, the definition of it, and mm-hmm. where it is today? Sure. So,
2: the general term histology is just the study of uh, the microscopic study of tissues. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with just bone. It can be any type oh. of tissue. Um, So skin, organ, uh, blood, but specifically bone tissue histology Mm -hmm. is the study of of bone microstructure using a microscope looking at it at the millimeter or micrometer Mm -hmm. scale and um, this Bone histology started, I guess, with uh, paleontology back in, I would say, the late 1800s, mm-hmm. and people would just draw what they saw in broken cross-sections of dinosaur bones or other animals, not necessarily dinosaurs, and they would see these weird structures mm-hmm. inside, and the really cool thing is the, the preservation of fossils not only pre- preserves the actual you know shape of the bone, mm-hmm. but everything down to the microscopic level. And because of that, um, people started using histology to try to understand how extinct animals were growing because all you have are the bones. And if we study modern animals and we know how a particular animal lived, how it grew up, how old it was, we can take the bone tissue we see on the microscopic level in those animals. And if we see similar patterns in an extinct animal, we can say that they were doing similar things. Or if we don't see the same things, we can say they were growing differently.
1: Right. Um, so you're using comparative anatomy.
2: Yes. On, on the microscopic on extint, scale.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me... Wait, we have, well, we have one does, question about microscopic bones. But I, gotta, uh, I got one too, okay, so all right, you yeah. go ahead.
0: Sir. I defer, sir. Um, go ahead.
1: So if bone fossilizes and all the mineralization is replaced... That's my question. <laughs> okay, if bone... <laughs> if all Sorry. the mineralization is replaced from the surrounding matrix the bone is d- deposited in, it still preserves cellular bone cells on a on a microscopic level?
2: It preserves the product of bone cells. So bone, a lot of people don't realize that bone is a living tissue, and that's why we can use it to understand how animals live because the the cells that produce bone do so by secreting bone, collagen, and mineral around them, then they get trapped in the bone that they've produced. and um, so the bone is composed of both a collagen and a mineral component. The collagen component, degrades over time, so that's typically not preserved in the fossil record, but the mineral component is. Unless you're Mary Schweitzer. Right, exactly.
0: (laughs) Mary Schweitzer is widely recognized for her pioneering work in the field of molecular paleontology. In 2007, she discovered soft tissue and blood cells in the bones of a 68-million-year-old tyrannosaurus known as the B-Rex from Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana mary was also able to determine that the b rex was a female and was pregnant when she died the extraction of protein remnant cells and short strands of d n a from fossil dinosaur bone is an astounding discovery and the claim has not been without its detractors but mary and her mentor jack horner stand behind her work
2: some people can manage to find the soft tissue stuff, but um, in general, you know, if you're if you're looking at a fossil, you're looking at the mineralized components. And because bone has a mineralized component, that actually it takes the same form or shape as the collagen component. So if you see the mineral, you know what the collagen was doing. And because of that, the mineral component isn't erased or gotten rid of during fossilization. It actually um, is replaced by a more stable form of bone mineral. So it's hydroxyapatite. And when it um, preserves in the fossil record, it uh, is replaced by a more stable form called fluorohydroxyapatite.
0: Is the bone still bone, like from the Cretaceous? Can it actually still be bone, right? Mm -hmm. I've heard this before.
2: Yeah, and in, in really rare cases, bone can still be bone, and um, you need to do chemical analyses to determine that, and that's what Mary Schweitzer's work with um, the NC State Group is doing, in that she can do these chemical analyses to actually tease apart the mineral component and the soft tissue component of bone. What
1: kind of strata so, or deposition would keep a bone a bone? I mean, I, I go out in my backfield well, and I see deer skeletons which are almost dust after a year or two
0: i was gonna say i had the honor and the privilege to go dinosaur hunting up on the colville river in the arctic and those bones and uh from the the scientists i was with you know greg erickson and pat Druckenmiller, miller they were saying the bone was still bone well, so was
1: <laughs> my steak in the freezer That's <laughs> a freezer up there but it wasn't. Uh, it was. I know it wasn't back then when the bones were deposited.
0: So yeah, that's an astounding thing about fossils: is that sometimes everybody just imagines everything is turned to rock, but mm-hmm. sometimes the bone preserves beautifully. But let me ask you this, Holly: you killed Tyrannus. <laughs>
2: I helped kill it.
0: You killed it. I helped. You helped kill it. Yes. But I want to know is Nano Tyrannus dead? Are there still people still holding on to this? Or did you, with your work, your amazing work, how'd you go about getting rid of Nano Tyrannus? And and explain to us what Nano Tyrannus is.
1: Sure. So.
2: I mean, most scientists, paleontologists, especially Tyrannosaur researchers, consider Nanotyrannus to have been dead or invalid back in the late 90s with uh, the publication um, that Thomas Carr did basically synonymizing Nanotyrannus into Tyrannosaurus, and um, it's just been a vocal minority that has kept insisting that Nanotyrannus is a valid thing, and um there have been numerous publications that have come out since then, including another one that Thomas Carr did, um, subsequently synonymizing it, you know, again with more data. And um, every argument that the nanotyrannus supporters have used to say, "Oh, this is still a real thing," has been refuted in scientific publication. So, um, wait, before
1: we continue, continue, just define mm-hmm. nanotyrannus.
2: Sure. So Nanotyrannus is the name given to a small, smallish skull of a tyrannosaur dinosaur. It's smallish, like uh, maybe a meter long. Mm -hmm. Um, It's given to this tyrannosaur dinosaur skull that was found way back and described in the 40s. And back then it was actually described as a Gorgosaurus, which is a relative of T. rex from Canada. And um, it was found in the Hell Creek Formation of Montana, so it would have been living alongside T. Rex, which you know gets to be like four or five feet long. So it was
1: mistakenly thought of as another species when it really is just a young Tyrannosaurus.
2: That's what the majority of scientists think now. Holly, Um, is mm -hmm. this
1: the specimen that's at the
0: Cleveland Museum?
2: Yes, it is.
0: It was pulled right off the top of a hoodoo, just sitting right Mm -hmm. there. And I did a little drawing of that. They just—it was sitting on top of a hoodoo. Serious? Seriously, it was just a little hoodoo, and who was it that collected it?
2: Oh, so Gilmore described it in 1947.
1: By the way, a hoodoo, if you don't know, is a pillar of usually sandstone sculpted by erosion. Hoodoos typically consist of relatively soft rock topped by harder, less easily eroded stone that protects each column from the elements. They look like little strange elves from a distance, and they apparently found a dinosaur skull sitting on top of one. And uh, yeah. <laughs> are there usually fossils on top of these things Or that's just a rare There can be Yeah. There's
0: been some very famous cases of uh, fossils Sitting right on top of hoodoos Like, whoa, look at that But that was back in, excuse me for this pun But I've got to do it back, That was back in the hoodoo heyday oh. Dude, but in the hoodoo <laughs> heyday When people hadn't been looking for fossils so hard There were fossils sitting on top of these hoodoos Like, weathered out and uh, the bone or the fossil was the harder structure, and there was just this whole column below it. And that very famously, that uh, so called Nano Tyrannus is sitting at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. But Holly's work how did you kill Nano what did What did the bone tell you about? How did you dismantle this idea of a, a miniature T Rex?
2: about that specimen, the Cleveland specimen, is that it's just the skull. It's this beautiful, you know, almost complete, almost perfectly preserved skull, but there's no skeleton go with it. And we don't know if that's just because it floated off, you know, and and (laughs) got preserved somewhere else, or maybe the skeleton's still there in the ground and the, the crew just didn't bother looking for it because back then head hunting is what we call it uh, was a big thing in paleontology. You know, the head was what mattered. That's, that's the awesome, sexy part um, that would, attract a lot of attention. So this beautiful skull was collected, but there were there was no post-crania, no arms, legs, anything to go with it. So that's really all we had to go on for a really long time. And so through the years, this thing was renamed to Albertosaurus. It was actually in the 1960s. Someone suggested it was a juvenile T-Rex. Um, and then in 1988, that's when Robert Bakker renamed it uh, Nanotyrannus lancensis because he felt that it had enough characters that were unique to call it a completely different genus and um, since then that's, that's what it's been referred to but then other scientists came along and argued that these features are actually all juvenile features that we see in other Tyrannosaurs so chances are this is just a young T. rex because You know, if you start thinking about T. rex, all we ever find, you know, in the in the collections are these huge ones. So they had to grow up from something. So this might just be (laughs) it. Um, So back in Mm -hmm. the early 2000s, the Burpee Museum of Natural History from Rockford, Illinois, went out to the Hell Creek Formation in the same area, actually, that the uh, Cleveland skull was collected And they actually found two small tyrannosaurs, very similar in size to the Cleveland skull. Um, And they had both uh, cranial and postcranial material. So they actually had legs, Um, which is important to me because with bone histology, I'm interested in how an animal is growing. And the best way to, to study that is by looking at the microstructure in legs. And
1: so is that the best bone? Because like the femur mm-hmm. is like usually the largest and and grows the most, doesn't it?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. So you want to study, if you're studying bone growth and how fast an animal was growing from year to year, you want to use a bone that is weight bearing because the bone it has to react to stress. And if the mm. animal's putting on weight, the bone is going to react to be able to accommodate that weight. So you want to use, you don't want to use something like you know, in this case, T-Rex forearms, because they were probably doing not much. <laughs> so I wouldn't really tell you much about how a T-Rex was growing, but its femur and its tibia would. And hmm. so that's that's what you want to look at. But with my entry into this whole hotbed of of controversy, I was actually coming in it. I read the literature, you know, I, I love T-Rex, but I'm a histologist first, so I'll, I'll cut up and, and look at anything that's got legs. <laughs> but I was interested in understanding more about how Tyrannosaurus rex grew up, from little baby chick to huge Sioux-sized predator or, or carnivore. So, um, Or
1: opportunist.
2: Right, exactly. So I was really interested in that mid-sized range, Because everyone's always talking about how amazing T-Rex is and how big it is in this super carnivore thing. Um, But I wanted to see how it got there. And so I went into the project, having read the literature, the consensus is that these are juvenile T-Rex. And so I went in with that that impression that pretty much everyone's on board with these being juveniles. So when I, I looked at the histology... I thought, oh well, you know what? There's this controversy with Nanotyrannus as well, and um, because the group that is in, su- in support of Nanotyrannus, they actually agree that these Burpee museum specimens are Nanotyrannus, right? So everyone else is calling them juvenile T. Rex. The Nanotyrannus group says, no, they're not juvenile T. Rex. These are definitely Nanotyrannus. So I could look at the bone tissue, you know, independent of what everyone else was using, which is the the skull shape or the bone shapes. And I could independently either support or reject the hypothesis that Nanotyrannus was this real thing just by seeing whether or not the bone tissue showed me whether or not these things were juveniles or whether their tissue showed me that they were adult animals or they were reaching adult size.
1: So what is the difference between a juvenile bone in a microscope Mm -hmm. and an adult bone?
2: So a juvenile bone of... If we, if we, again, we have to do that comparative anatomy. So we're looking at modern animals. And for dinosaurs, their most closely um, um, extant or living relatives today are the birds and the crocodiles. And birds are their direct descendants. And the bone histology of birds today looks way more like the bone histology of dinosaurs than does the the crocodilians. And would you
1: go for an ostrich? I mean, a large weight, you know, a large bird that has Mm -hmm. a lot of weight.
2: Yeah, we always want to start with that close relative just because that's that makes sense to compare like with like, but bone histology tells you more about how the animal is growing than um, sometimes than it does about who's related to who. So rapidly growing animals today, both birds and mammals, have this tissue that is very disorganized looking under a microscope so almost the bone fibers almost look like um, pickup sticks that have just <laughs> been tossed on the ground and that tells you that the bone was growing really quickly the, so the bone cells were secreting a lot of bone It mineralized really quickly, didn't have time to really organize itself. Slower bone has time to organize. It almost looks like sedimentary layers, uh, the way the fibers are arranged. So if you see the fast bone growth, that's what we see in juvenile animals that are growing quickly. And then once you get to reach adult size or you get to that plateau where you don't have your growth spurt, you're reaching adult size, that's when the bone tissue switches to this more organized, sedimentary look because you don't uh. have to grow as much anymore. So that's the difference in what I'm looking for.
1: How do you see evidence of years?
2: Oh, so bone is amazing because it's it looks just like tree rings in the bone. Um, so you can actually mm. count those. We know again through comparative anatomy that animals that take more than a year to grow up to adult size, pause their growth annually. Even in perfect optimal conditions, this seems to be a, a an inherited character, a primitive trait that all vertebrate animals share.
1: Based on the solar year?
2: Um, yeah, so it's, it's we think it's based on photo period. Um, so, so the light. Mm-hmm. So it's based on light. Uh, a couple of experiments have been done with lemurs, actually, and they've adjusted the photo period of one group and left the other group as a control. And they actually were able to get these lemurs to pause their growth at a different if time of year. If
0: they put them in yeah. a dark room for a while, yeah. So, so they lemurs just, in the mm-hmm. dark. Yeah, they, they left
2: them in the dark hey, a little bit longer. That means
0: you could probably study my bone structure living in Alaska <laughs> and. Hey, so you've got to cut into these Mm so-called nanotyrannus bones. Your paper came out earlier this year. You effectively, is the argument over these are juvenile t-rexes? Has the Burpee Museum accepted your results? Has Bakker accepted?
2: I haven't heard from Bakker. Um, The Burpee Museum had accepted... The idea that these are juvenile T. rex uh, way before this paper came out based okay. on the morphology of the skulls, um, because there's really good argument that the the characteristics seen in the, the burpee specimens and the Cleveland specimens are all juvenile features that we see in relatives of T. rex. Um, so that hasn't been in dispute, um, but what I thought I could do in addition to Learning how T. Rex was growing is provide additional evidence coming from a different direction that further supports the hypothesis that that this is these are juveniles and that Nanotyrannus is invalid. Um, and that was a hypothesis I could test if I had found that that these Burpee specimens had slow-growing bone with uh, growth rings that were really closely spaced. Um, that means. Not very much growth from year to year, then that would be really strong evidence that Nanotiranus is a valid taxon. But they were old.
0: Right. right. But
2: I didn't find that. I found that these burpee specimens were growing as you would expect juvenile animals to grow.
0: How old were they?
2: So one was. In life. One was at least 13 years, the other one was at least 14 years.
0: Wow. And they had sharper teeth than. Mm And can you imagine that these are teenage killers? Are they the ones doing the
1: killing? Well, and the how hunting, big are these specimens? Think? How big?
2: Oh, um, I don't know, maybe eight feet at the hip.
1: Okay, so they're, so they're a couple, they're, they're a
0: thousand, couple thousand pounds. Maybe twenty, thirty feet long, twenty-ish oh, feet long. Oh,
1: those are big. You wouldn't want to meet one well, on a dark alley. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. So do you think that they were, you know, there's been, you know, we we talked to Jack Corner uh, just a few days ago, actually, we had the scavenger predator thing. And it occurred to me that maybe the juveniles were really doing the active hunting and much more, you know, lighter. And I could just imagine that there was these teenage killers. And then when the big, big T-Rex lumbered along, it would just kind of shove the kids out of the way and go in for the for the easy meal that the kids did the killing.
2: That makes a lot of sense to me. And some of, I think, the, the most important thing that comes out of our research paper from earlier this year is the idea that um, uh, that we have demonstrated how Tyrannosaurus Rex might have done niche partitioning. And that's what Wait, you guys are talking about here. Niche? It's called niche partitioning. Right.
1: A niche is, um, so, a, uh, is an ecological compartment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's... It's um, an ecological compartment that a particular animal, in this case, it basically fills that, um, doing whatever it's doing in the ecosystem as part of the food web, as part of um, the ecological cycle. You know, it's, it's fulfilling some role there. And... The idea of niche partitioning isn't something new either, and it's actually been observed in uh, crocodilians, actually. So that's a good example of niche partitioning today, where you have an alligator, for example. It hatches out; it's you know a cute little six-inch-long thing, and it eats bugs and and. Well, mostly bugs and maybe minnows. But as it gets bigger, it's eating rats and nutria. And by the time it gets to be, you know, these behemoth alligators, it could eat cows or or household pets. And so...
1: Or Disney guests.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So by the time it gets to that stage, it's eating whatever it wants. But the thing is, within its environment, it is filling all of these different niches as it gets bigger. And because it takes maybe 20 years to get to adult size, it's basically taking its time and filling all of these niches, excluding the other... Carnivores that would have filled these niches. So, the cool thing about the Hell Creek ecosystem is that we don't find any mid sized carnivores other than these small bodied tyrannosaurs in that ecosystem. So, in the Morrison Formation and in the Jurassic, you've got Allosaurus, you've got Torvosaurus, Ceratosaurus, you've got all these different sized
1: carnivores competing. They're all competing. Mm
2: -hmm. Yep. And in the Hell Creek ecosystem, it's just T Rex. And so they're really just competing against each other and you know if they're half sized at 13 or 14 that sort of shows us that you know they were also taking their time to get to adult size. They didn't need to grow quickly to like, you know, to get to adult size in 5 years. They could they could stay in this particular niche and eat whatever they were eating and then grow and eventually get to be, you know, the the king of the dinosaurs 20
1: years on. So is there any is there any ecosystem today where all the carnivores have been pushed out because and there's only one top predator in any existent ecosystem? Cuz like the African savanna has 3 yeah. or 4 predators. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jungles of the Amazon uh, have. A well, you
0: go to the Arctic North. You've got polar bears, True. and that's it. Mm-hmm.
1: So ah, there we I'm go.
2: Yeah, there know, you go, Ray. Got, gotcha. Yeah. Hey, you, go. you
0: know, I was thinking about this ecosystem. Uh, eco. What was the niche?
2: Niche partitioning.
0: Niche partitioning. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about my favorite shark of long ago, so-called shark, the Helicoprion, the buzzsaw shark. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're young, they've got these sort of thin blades, but by the time they're adults, they are these massive teeth. And uh, I see them as, and they're pretty much, there's not a lot of other big predators at the time. That That have been found. Mm -hmm. That had been found, but still, uh, Helica Prime was uh, king of the ocean, and they were global. And uh, I think as they got older, they could eat whatever the heck they wanted. But there's also the idea, too, that animals are cannibalistic. Mm -hmm. So the T-Rexes might have been eating other T-Rexes.
2: Yeah, I mean, we see that in birds today all the time with falcons eating other birds. So, um, yeah, the cannibalistic theropods... It, it seems shocking when you hear that or, or see that in the fossil record, but today we see that in birds a lot, and uh, yeah. nobody thinks anything of it. Um,
1: so I read Bacher's Dinosaur Heresies uh, mm-hmm. when that came out. What is the consensus on dinosaurs? Are they, were they, warm-blooded?
2: Oh, I think definitely, uh, based on a, a
1: variety histologically, of Histologically, different... what is your yeah. proof?
2: Mm-hmm. Histologically, we can we have to do that comparative anatomy again and we look at modern animals that are warm-blooded and we look at their histology and their bone microstructures and then we see correlations between their growth rate and bone organization, their growth rate and blood vessel orientation and the density of those bone forming cells and all of these things can be correlated with metabolism and growth rate today so then you know we have to assume the processes that are acting on bone today acted on bone you know 66 million years ago so it's a
1: slam dunk but are there any mesozoic yeah. reptiles that were cold-blooded
2: oh yeah sure um you know mesozoic reptiles like i don't know the th- the same ones that are around today so turtles are a great example okay um, yeah, so there were cold-blooded things around back then. We don't see alligators in the fossil record in um, the, you know, closer to the poles. So that's a good indication that back then they were also cold-blooded. And their tissue, their bone tissue, uh, crocodilians from back in the Cretaceous, looks very similar to crocodilians today. So they were probably growing in a similar way.
0: So it's interesting um... Wow. To just think that, were all dinosaurs warm-blooded then? Or do you think within the Dinosauria there were some cold-blooded characters as well?
2: I think there's good evidence that all dinosaurs were warm-blooded. The ones that histologically don't have as fast-growing bone tissue are typically the smaller ones. And that's also true today of warm-blooded animals that are small they also don't grow as fast as large animals so um and we can look back in the fossil record and look at the common ancestor of dinosaurs we, we can look at the histology the of like archosauriforms and if they are displaying the same kind of bone tissue that we see in warm-blooded animals today it's likely that you know the dinosaurs inherited this warm-blooded trait from an ancestor, common ancestor.
1: Can you tell the lifestyle of uh, an organism through histology, whether it encountered drought or periods of no food uh, or its death?
2: So we think that the the growth rings that you see in the bone, uh, the difference between those and what you see in trees is a lot of times, you know, trees will stop growing during incredibly stressful times, or they'll put down, you know, several rings. Um, we think, based on modern animals today, that stress isn't so much of a cause of these growth rings. It's more that um, inherited uh, characteristic of all vertebrates, but we do we can see some evidence of stress in bones because you get these non-annual rings, so they look a little bit different than the annual ones that might indicate a stressful period where the animal um, slowed its growth. Sometimes we can uh, see pathologies in the bone, so we we can look at uh, bone tissue microstructure and see where the bone was broken and rehealed, um, bone sicknesses like uh, bone cancer we can see that histologically as well, um, and then we can also see, for example, uh, differences in in bone growth rate with with dinosaurs. They seem to be very plastic in their growth, so that if they were encountering a stressful period in their year, they some, some of them just didn't grow as much, so they still...
1: They're resilient.
2: Mm-hmm, so they still had those rings, but the space between the rings might have been closer because they weren't getting enough to eat. Um, but then once they got enough to eat, they sort of rebounded and
1: grew quickly wow. again.
0: Wow, Holly, I was reading some of your press releases mm-hmm. and from over the years, and uh, you got some press down in Australia yes. with a small uh, hypsilophodontid?
2: Good
0: job. <laughs> yeah, I was trying, <laughs> trying that. To Hipsof- that. Small. Hypsilophilodonid. <laughs> hipso- <laughs> hipso-
1: Hypsilophilodonid.
0: Yes. But this this sad little, it's a tiny dinosaur, and you surmise that it broke its leg at one time and it then died of starvation. But it, it healed. No, no, it,
1: it nursed mm-hmm. the injury for a while and then died, not from the broken bone. Right. You
0: know, you you may not know this, but Dave's kind of a big deal in Australia. But did you go down and did, were you working in Australia on that? And yes. Tell us about that little dinosaur. And...
2: So I went to the um, Museum Victoria in Melbourne, or Melbourne, and um, I was interested in looking at the bone histology of these polar dinosaurs, we call them, because back in the Cretaceous, Australia was more within the Antarctic circle than it is now. Um, and back then, Australia was more in the Antarctic Circle, which means the animals would have experienced prolonged periods of darkness. Um, I mean, there was no you know permanent ice caps, but it still would have been cooler down near the poles, the the South
1: Pole, than you know at the equator. This picture, this painting of mm-hmm. the
0: uh... hypsilophodon Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I looked at it twice and I had to do a double take. It's sitting kind of in ice, like the water has frozen around it. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's I love that that idea there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Trexler does some amazing art, and he, he's one of my favorite artists as well. So, um, don't cry, Ray. As
0: awesome. well, good. No, <laughs> as she well. said as no, well. No, she no, no, said no. as well. Ray, stop crying. So, Ray. How did how did you figure out? No, his work is astounding. How did you figure out that this how it died?
2: I, I still don't. I just don't really know how it died. Uh, but the the leg itself. Um, it's just gnarly looking, it's, it's a tibia, so it's the shin bone of this dinosaur, and um, it, the shaft of it in histological section is basically sheared in half, so you can see the original oh. bone, but then you can see this wild, crazy bone callus that had grown around it, and then basically this stuff spread up and down the entire length of the bone, even onto the joint surface.
1: You mean the repair, the the bone healing?
2: Yeah. So I think it's an example of osteomyelitis, which is a bone infection, and and so it had what looks like these, (laughs) this disgusting these pus cavities. (laughs) So it would have it would have been weeping pus. Yeah, yeah, disgusting. so it's tibia a was like dinosaur. this. is little dinosaur.
1: Yeah, so maybe turkey. A little baby turkey. limping,
0: limping along. It's a turkey-sized dinosaur. Mm-hmm.
2: In, in Australia, they compare it to wallaby, I guess, for press releases.
1: Wallaby. <laughs> wallaby.
2: <laughs> um, so its tibia was really messed up, but this didn't spread to any of the other limb bones because... Um, it, they have the back end of this animal preserved the way it it just looks like it laid down and died. And so the um, Tom Rich at the museum there allowed me to histologically section the femur as well, which looked just fine. And so I was able to compare the femur, the thigh bone histology, with the histology of the tibia. And what I found was that I could count the growth ring record pretty well in the femur, which was harder to find in the tibia after that weird growth started. So I found a different number of growth rings in the femur than I did in the tibia. So I surmised that, you know, the tibia was fine up until I think it was like three years of age, then whatever happened to the leg happened, and then it lived for another year or two before succumbing to something.
1: Could the pathology indicate a bite?
2: No. Um it it really just looks like a bone break. Poor thing. <laughs> um, at least in cross section, and the sad part is the tibia length on that side is different from the length on the other oh. side. So, so he was limping. So he was limping. It was oh. um, the tibia, injured tibia, was much shorter than the other leg, uh, other leg. Did you
1: go to the collection site, uh, uh, Dinosaur Cove, or just went to the museum?
2: So I went down uh, to the coast there, and I didn't actually actively do anything at Dinosaur Cove, but I it was because it was winter down there, and it was. Oh, it's gnarly!
1: Um, it is gnarly really and cold, chilly. and windy, <laughs> and waves.
2: But but Tom and Pat Rich took me to the site um, on the ocean there, and so I got to see that, and then they took me to see the little penguins, which was awesome. The fairy penguins! Oh yeah,
0: I've done <laughs> that. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> So can you actually tell, uh, i just assume I said that he broke his uh, leg, but uh, can you find figure out the sex of an animal via the bone?
2: If you're really lucky. Um, so dinosaurs are the ancestors of birds, at least the Saurischians are the most common ancestors of birds today, which includes theropods, not these little hypsolophodonus. They were Ornithischians. But um, modern birds today have this weird tissue in the middle of their marrow cavity. They form the where? Um, just the females what? in the marrow cavity.
1: What cavity? Ma- the marrow. Oh, marrow. Sorry, marrow. Oh, I didn't hear you. Marrow. Oh, sorry. I thought it was some <laughs> new cavity a bird had. We know. I... Oh,
2: no. <laughs> yeah, bird's tongue is a unique so... cavity. Um, so in the marrow cavity of female birds only, they start producing extra bone, and that, hormonally, this is controlled. Um, you see hens eating a lot of uh, grist, and, uh, you know, birds like to, to munch on limestone. This is because it's calcium rich, and they start eating this extra calcium to help produce this bone in their marrow cavity that acts as a calcium reservoir because their eggs are are calcium and if they didn't produce this calcium reservoir bird bones are so hollow that the calcium would start coming from the bone itself and so this would cause the bones to be super fragile and very osteoporotic so modern birds have what's called medullary bone um And they start producing this before they shell their eggs internally, so before their their eggs grow the shell uh,
1: um,
2: and this is where the so
1: it's a calcium repository
2: mm-hmm, exactly, Interesting. and so Sometimes in the fossil record, we're lucky enough to find theropods that have medullary bone showing that they either died right before laying an egg, maybe right after laying an egg, or that they were pregnant when they died.
1: Okay, that's what I want to <laughs> know. You just said the magic word, T-Rex. Did they right. lay eggs <laughs> or did they give live birth? And how do we know? Oh,
2: they most likely laid eggs. We don't have any evidence that any no dinosaur evidence. gave live birth. Nope. And we have to, again, use modern animals for comparison. We know that both uh, crocodiles and birds lay eggs. Um, We have evidence that pterosaurs, which are kind of an offshoot before they're still archosaurs, um, that pterosaurs laid eggs. So we have evidence that all these other archosaurs were laying eggs and probably dinosaurs did too.
0: So nobody's found a T-Rex egg yet, <laughs> or we haven't found a, a baby T-Rex yet. An embryo? I
2: think, yeah, I think a paper just came out recently um, that published like right. a little tiny jaw of a, of a T-Rex embryo, oh, well. um, but not okay. like a full egg. Um, there have only been a couple of instances that I'm aware of, of any type of eggshell from the Hell Creek formation.
0: Interesting. Hey, Holly, you teach anatomy. Yes. Do you teach paleontology as well? I do. All those things. And you've, you've done some unique things with using dinosaurs to teach kids about Mm -hmm. our own anatomy. What's, what's that all about? What's that program?
2: Oh, it's um, something I've been doing locally in, uh, because I work at a medical school here, we try to hook kids into uh, science and, you know, I would love for them to become paleontologists, but to have kids become more aware of science is really important to me and to to the uh, medical school here so what we try to do is my paleo group with my graduate students we do a couple of things one program is that we go out to elementary schools and we make plaster casts of dinosaur fossils and you know shark fossils and we break them up and we bury them in sand and we we teach uh the kids to be paleontologists for the day so
0: um
2: so you know we give them each brushes and we give them the sandbox and we tell them that once they have their broken pieces they have to use this field guide to put everything back together and then figure out what it is that they found um and then at the end of the day they get to keep a complete, you know, non-broken plaster cast of their fossil. And so they're always super excited about that. They get to learn comparative anatomy that way. So that's one of the programs I do. And then another program involves the medical students and working with the medical students that will one day become osteopathic doctors, um, you know, practitioners we go to schools and we take like a human skeleton and human bones and then i i take modern bones from from animals like deer um, and then i take some dinosaur bones and we focus normally on one bone like the humerus the upper arm bone and basically having kids try to figure out what bones are going to what animals and uh, just having them understand homology so did you know that you've got the same bone as a dinosaur? It sounds kind of silly, but for, for elementary school kids, that is so cool to have something in common with a dinosaur.
0: You know, that's that's absolutely brilliant because it's just stating the obvious things to kids, but so many teachers don't convey that. Right. And this is a great program that you're doing.
2: Yep, and so we try to get the doctors involved, the future doctors involved that way, um, because then they can see that, you know, you've got the same bones as a dinosaur, which is really cool. You should come study bones and human anatomy, and maybe you could be a doctor one day, and and instead of dinosaur doctors, you could be human doctors, or you could be either. But, yeah. you know, we're right up the road, and come keep us in mind when you're ready to, to become a doctor. That's, that's great,
1: <laughs> showing, showing children they have choices. hmm Exactly. So, Holly, what is the coolest or weirdest thing you found in your career, either looking at bones or in some back collection room somewhere. What is the most awesome paleo nerd thing you've ever discovered or, or found in a drawer somewhere?
2: Oh man, that's tough. Um, I think for me, the coolest thing, if this is going to sound really silly, but I've, I've always loved paleontology. And when I first got to uh, the museum in the Rockies for my dissertation work, Jack told me, just go in collections and start opening up drawers to get an idea. You know, maybe a question will come to your mind. Just go in collections and have fun. And so I started opening all the drawers and collections, didn't really know what to expect. And I pulled out one drawer, which um, was the uh, B-Rex, T-Rex from the Hell Creek Formation. And one drawer just had... Every one of its teeth just lined up in this drawer, and I mean, we're talking like literally you know, the lethal banana sized teeth. And, and who is that? B-Rex? Was probably one that so B Rex is, um, the it's famous because it has that medullary tissue oh. in it, so we know that it's a, a female, female. T Rex. Oh. Um, so it, in addition to having that in the leg, you know, it had a really nice skull and even a, a forearm. And this one drawer was just full of its teeth, and I just remember it. You know, it's it's amazing to me when you look at a dinosaur on display, but when you see those fossils that close and you get to, to stare at them and hold them, you realize how huge yeah. <laughs> these things actually are. And the
1: serrations. Are. I mean, they literally oh are steak knives. Beautiful. Beautiful. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. yep. So that's probably the coolest thing in collections. The coolest thing histologically was probably... Um, The first time I looked at a dinosaur under the microscope, it was just amazing to me that, first of all, the tissue is preserved. I mean, you always get, you hold dinosaur bones, but you actually see them under the microscope, these little tiny pits where the bone cells were. And the fact that when I looked under there, I, I made this slide, I knew where it came from, I looked under the microscope, and it's basically the entire record of this animal's growth. And I could, if I could figure out what it means, I could read it. And that was so exciting to me, just to be able to say, hey, I I can read your life. You know, I know what happened to you.
0: Wow. Before I ask a certain question, mm-hmm. I want to know, you thought a lot about T-Rex. What about those tiny little arms? Yeah. What are those little arms <laughs> <is> all about? What is <laughs> wrong? What's, what's, can you tell us what's happening there? Actually, it's, can, the, can, can it's I, the, can the I Can I give thumb? you
1: my theory, my stupid, sure. unlearned theory? Oh, my God.
0: Okay, okay. All right, go ahead.
1: Okay. Evolution prefers success. If your face and head is nothing but a biting machine and you have strong neck muscles, it can probably have the ability to snap in almost any direction. Why do you need little arms if you have a mouth that can literally grab something? Why would you need it? They would just vanish into evolutionary disuse.
0: Well, somebody once described T-Rex to me, he's like, think of it as a large running head. <laughs> you know, just legs. In it. and Well, of course, those legs are lethal. But, David, that's a ventriloquist uh, idea. the yeah. already idea. we have a PhD with us well, here we do. Who's, who's thought about this probably her entire life.
2: Yeah, so I think the question about T-Rex's little arms, I mean, I guess it looks ridiculous to people that aren't used to staring at T-Rex as much as paleontologists, but... Birds do the same thing. So, you know, ostriches and kiwis, for example, they've got ridiculously short arms for their body and they don't really do anything with them except, you know, wave them around. Um, So I think it doesn't really need to be there for for whatever they're doing. They're successful without it. And I think in in T-Rex's case, you know, natural selection, whatever was driving their evolution, um they were basically evolving to be, you know, mouth manipulators. So they were, they were chasing after their prey if they were hunting. Um, they were crushing their dead animals. They didn't really do anything with their arms, but um, evolution doesn't work like if you use it, you lose it. I think T-Rex, first of all, came from smaller animals that actually did have decently sized arms, um, but then it, it got to be you know a a giant and the arms aren't proportionally they don't look proportionally right but if you have this huge six foot long skull with all these powerful muscles in the skull um, it it could be a a case of counterbalancing as well Um, as far as you know you're putting all this weight up front but as far as what it was using it for um, they still have claws
0: well you know i i read in in Jack Horner's book about the mm-hmm. T-Rex that basically a T-Rex arm is about the length of an adult human mm-hmm. you know so but that the bone itself was three times larger around than our bones mm-hmm. so they were really massive bones have you ever actually looked at
2: they were massive
0: at the histology of these small arms mm-hmm. but yet they're are they used for lifting can you tell the density of anything the bones will tell you
2: The histology shows that they're really remodeled, which means um, they look older than the animal actually is because, again, they're not weight-bearing. So Mm. um, a lot of times, non-weight-bearing bones are going to be remodeled
1: a lot quicker. You mean they're denser?
2: Uh, They are denser than like a human bone, for example, in in cross-section. The interesting thing is, too, is that T-Rex doesn't actually have the smallest arms of a dinosaur. So, um, you've got uh, Carnotaurus running around. Right. That's re- like, I mean, <laughs> it's even yeah, worse. Little, yeah. And then you've got, um, like, Mononikings, which have, you know, an arm with one finger. Um, so, it's not just T-Rex that was doing weird stuff. So, wait a minute. If they're How do they
1: use toilet paper?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I guess they use leaves. I don't know.
0: Okay. Well... <laughs> Hey, Holly, if you could time travel back, mm-hmm. only back, go to the past, what time era would you go to? What would you want? And what would you want to see?
2: Um, I honestly think I would probably go back to the latest Cretaceous and not to see T-Rex. I would love to see a T-Rex. But what I would like to see is I would like to go to the, the uplands environment um, that was, you know. When the Hell Creek Formation was being deposited, because we don't know anything about uplands um, Hmm. as far as the ecosystem. What do you mean
1: uplands? You mean higher elevations?
2: Yeah, yeah. So higher elevations away from the coastal plains, um, we get a lot of sedimentation in the coastal plain. That's what the Hell Creek environment was, but because Ah, we get sedimentation there. Where did that come from? right and you have erosion at higher elevations that isn't preserving that ecosystem so we really don't know what was going on away from the coastal plains uh, during the late cretaceous because nothing was preserved it's you know that's an erosional environment so we don't know what the ecosystem was what kind of crazy dinosaurs were living there that we just have no record of so that's the kind of thing that intrigues me and, you know, because we haven't ever found, you know, egg clutches in the Hell Creek Formation, chances are all these dinosaurs are laying their eggs in the uplands away from the coastal plains. So I'd like to see, you know, a nesting ground for anything, really. Uh, T-Rex would be really cool, but just to see a nesting ground of dinosaurs would be amazing.
1: That is awesome. Wow, cool. And just to reiterate, I like that vision. there's no T-Rex egg.
2: As far as I know, I mean, right. not, nothing conclusive.
1: Are there any predator eggs from North America? Oh yeah. They're sauropod eggs. Mm
2: -hmm. Yep, Um, one really famous example is, is that of Troodon. So they have egg clutches of Troodon from the Two Medicine Formation, which is also in Montana. Um, So, you know, uh, Myasauro is really famous for having the the nesting grounds in the Two Medicine Formation. But this tiny little uh, theropod Troodon was also around at the same time. And we have beautiful egg clutches of Troodon.
1: Fantastic. Okay, so um, I'm going to pretend like I'm not reading this. And you almost... You almost answered it because of the work that you're currently doing. Mm-hmm. But science is under attack more than ever because social media and the internet has the ability to spread opinions, lies, propaganda, and it's spread as truths or even as scientific fact. And users rarely take the time or the extra step to verify that what they're reading and reposting is scientific fact. So I know what you're doing, and but I'm going to ask you, what can you do, and what can we do to help promote the idea that facts are real and opinions are just that, somebody's point of view?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's a couple of answers to that I would like to go with. First of all, doing what you're doing now is really important, science communication. But I think um, we as scientists, scientists, communicators, and science reporters need to have more responsibility than what we've been um, having so far. What we've been doing in that um, being able to communicate science to the public, tell people what we're doing, but also explain what science is, because a lot of times people hear the word science kind of like evolution or natural selection, and they immediately go, "Ooh, you know, science is is bad. I don't, I don't want science." And explain that that science is testing hypotheses. I think. What I've learned, and again, I'm a histologist, I'm jumping into this whole T-Rex fiasco. You know, I I love T-Rex and I love studying T-Rex, but I'm a histologist, I'll study anything with bones. And what I've learned from this experience is that um, good science is by testing hypotheses. You have to understand the scientific method. A scientist should want to reject their hypothesis. So you're never trying to find evidence to support your hypothesis, you're always trying to find evidence to tear it down. Because if you can't find that evidence, that makes your hypothesis stronger. But if you can find a way to reject your hypothesis, then you can cross that hypothesis off the list and go with something else. To explain to people that just because you, you know, science doesn't care what you believe, science is based on facts. And if they want to say that nanotyrannus is, is real, then they need to come up with a testable hypothesis and demonstrate that they have evidence to back that up. Um And I'm not saying that one day I'll be, you know, one day I could be shown to be wrong. But that's how science works. You form and a counter-hypothesis. you welcome that. Yes. Yes. And that's the thing. You can't have... You can't have favorites or, or little pet hypotheses. You put your hypothesis out there.
1: What can we do about social media? How, how did we stop mm-hmm. that? A friend of mine said we need a microburst to reset the Internet. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, as far as social media goes, I think a lot can be done with scientific reporters. So the people that um, you know are communicating the science that gets published you know, a lot of that, it's great that they're trying to do that, but they need to make sure they get their facts right. Um, sometimes they misinterpret the facts, and I think a lot of that miscommunication leads to people grabbing onto something and running with it. Like with this Nana Tyrannus thing, um, a lot of reporters like the fact that this is a, a sexy debate um, that's been going on for years, and they like to cling on to that, but they really should stop trying to perpetuate something that is really dead in the water um, instead of trying to make it newsworthy and again I'm not saying that I have a a dog in the fight or I have a favorite Um, if I'm wrong one day and then turns out to be real that's great that's more diversity in the Hell Creek but um, right now the evidence does not support that and I have to go with what the evidence is showing.
0: It's interesting that you bring up the idea that you have to challenge yourself. That mm-hmm. basically you're you're your own. You're not pushing a theory. You just look at it and test it and challenge yourself. And, exactly. Uh, that's that's really interesting. And
2: that's something that Jack always showed or, or taught his students. He always told us that he would be so proud if if we actually rejected one of his hypotheses. You know that he had been publishing on. He's because he wants his students, he wants people to question things and make a question and make it testable, make it a hypothesis that you can test and try to reject or fail to reject. And so he's super excited if his students are creating questions that, um, you know, now that we have more evidence, we can go back and examine some of the hypotheses from the past and test them again.
1: That's the way it Mm, should be. Yeah. Wow.
0: Cool. Cool. Well, it has been so much fun talking to you. Thank you for joining a uh, ventriloquist and an artist. And <laughs> I, I really want to see some of your art, Holly. And yeah, especially you have some, to grab those, those, drawings, those little but, drawings
1: uh, in your father's Bible. We'd love to see some oh, pictures gotta, of those.
2: I'll ask them for them and see if they have them around.
1: Thank you for joining us. Yeah,
2: yeah thank you all. This is fun.
1: Thanks, Holly. And we'll see you later or something. Maybe we'll come down to your museum and you can show us a bone fragment in a microscope.
2: Yeah. I'd love to show you guys histology. It's amazing. It'll blow your mind.
1: All right.
0: Cool. Thanks, I'll See ya.
2: Thanks. Bye.
0: Bye-bye. It was so cool talking to Holly Woodward there in Oklahoma. And we're talking about, I learned more about dinosaur bones or bones in general than I've ever known before, man. Histology.
1: Yeah. I could hear, I could hear about T-Rexes all day long. What surprised you from that interview?
0: Oh, the fact that you could tell if uh, you, an animal basically stops growing and then you don't see the growth rings, obviously, anymore. It's yeah. just you top out T-Rexes. I thought maybe T-Rexes did keep going and there was hints that there were maybe even bigger ones out there, but no, we know they stopped and... And that, that sad story about the little hipposulphadontid oh, dying by the oh with the little broken leg <laughs> and this yeah. oh I just felt so the turkey sized dinosaur you know. in Australia so
1: I'm I'm sad and disappointed that there are no T Rex eggs.
0: Yeah, you know, but it just shows to go you that there's stuff out there that's uh, still but waiting for, for someone fact to find
1: that T Rexes didn't give birth to live young Just by the fact, you can't say, "Oh, there's no eggs," so they did that. So,
0: well, there's all kinds of their relatives that were giving birth via eggs. So, right. Hey, as always, it's fun doing this show, man. I really, uh, I, I enjoyed the heck out of that.
1: Yeah, that was great. All right, Ray. So uh, we've got some unbelievable, heavy hitting guests coming up in some upcoming episodes. Heavy
0: hitters keep on coming, man. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, this is so much fun, and I learned so much, and uh, you know. even if there wasn't a pandemic, I'd still be doing this. Really? Yeah. Yep.
0: You'd squeeze it in between all your tours around the globe? Yeah,
1: I sure would. And you know what? Well, I, I got say. an idea for you. Oh? Yeah. Well, if you like this podcast, please, please write a review. Please like it. Please like us on Instagram. Like us on Facebook. Like us wherever podcasts like us are walking sold. walking down the street. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Whatever or, podcasts
1: yeah. are sold. But All right, buddy. Hi, right, man goodbye from ojai california where the sky is gray the oak trees are evergreen
0: okay then signing off for beautiful ketchikan alaska where winter is upon us snow is in the forecast it's the land of slush and grayness and here the evergreen forest but whatever i love it i live here over and out man Hi.
2: thanks for being a paleo nerd help us spread the word of science Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.